God's Word says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Let's go before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love You this morning, and we just thank You for the comfort of Your Word, the comfort of Your Holy Spirit indwelling in us, walking beside us in this life. And I pray that You would bless me this morning with the Holy Spirit, bless our hearts and our minds to Your truth and Your message in spite of the messenger. In Christ's name, for His glory. Amen. All right, so Peter here... Um, one of my favorite books of the New Testament. Peter here is writing this letter to a group of suffering people. He's writing to believers who were scattered throughout the world, scattered due to persecution. And uh, the name that he gives these believers in the first chapter of the book is the diaspora, the dispersed ones. They were running for their lives because of persecution, because of pain, because of uh, Jews and Romans and every side, um, they were running for their lives. So he, he writes this letter to encourage them in the suffering, to encourage them because of the salvation that they have in Christ. That what they were going through in light of this salvation was worth it in the grand scheme. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, "...in this you rejoice." Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been greased, excuse me, grieved by various trials. And then verse 7, he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he builds up the, the truth and the glory of the salvation that we've been given. And, and when you put the, the suffering that we face in light of that salvation, it puts it into perspective. So he teaches them the truth, the theology behind our salvation. And then like many of the other uh, books in the New Testament, it, they have a theological section and he moves on from that because this is true how now shall we then live? He moves into a practical section. In the end of chapter 2, he teaches them, because you are saved, because you are changed, because you have this gift, how do you deal with being under an unrighteous government as a Christian? How do you deal with being a slave that is subject to a master that is not a Christian? He deals with husbands and wives and how they should treat each other, how they should act towards one another, even when one of the spouses is not a believer. 
So he's teaching us how to live as Christians in an unsaved world. And each time, Peter points to Christ and shows us how he lived, how the example that he set for us. And yes, they were suffering, but Christ suffered too. He is our example. And Peter makes that very clear. So now we get to the last chapter in his letter, and he gives his final thoughts. And so at the conclusion of this letter, he, the, the main thing he wants us to get is that we are to be humble, that Christians are to be known for their humility, that we are to be different from the world in how we treat pride and humility and each other and everyone else and God Himself. Every believer must humble themselves. That is Peter's message to us here in the last chapter of First Peter. So our first verse we're going to look at is verse number 5. And it's going to teach us that we are humble by subjecting ourselves to others. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And as we look at the first part of this verse, we see that it connects with uh, the previous passage where Peter is teaching the elders, the pastors of the church, how to treat their calling, how to treat their flock, and what position they are in as pastors, how the church can thrive even in times of suffering. So Peter speaks to the elders of the churches, reminding them of their duty to the flock. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says, I so exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He shows that he, as an apostle, is in the same position. He's a fellow elder with the pastors of these churches to the diaspora. And he calls them to take on the same role that he has taken in the church in Jerusalem as a shepherd, as an overseer, as an elder. That their people are a flock to be cared for and loved and helped. Now, one of the natural fleshly feelings that you can get in a position of leadership is a position of pride and of using your spot in leadership as to take advantage of the flock. We see it over and over again. Peter warns against this in the second and third verse of chapter 5. He calls the pastors to check their motives. Why are you doing this? Why are you seeking to lead a flock that Christ has given you? So with the, the goal of rightly pastoring Christ's flock, he brings he gives us verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So instead of looking for that reward here and looking for that position here, that, that, that pride of, of being in leadership and that the reward of maybe money and planes or, or whatever uh, this world has to offer, you put that aside and you as an under shepherd, Christ, the head of the church is the over, the chief shepherd. And when it's all over, he will give you the unfading crown of glory. So your, your view is not here on this earth, but past and through and to the other side. And so this is the test for the pastor, the elder. Are you shepherding the flock in humility? 
Do you understand your place under the chief shepherd? And are you waiting through the hardship and the hard times of being a pastor, of having to preach those funerals, of having to deal with the, the normal issues of life in your flock with humility, but also waiting for your reward in the future and not expecting it here and now? So that is the context of the passage that we're looking at today. So verse 5 starts with the word likewise. So he's connecting this idea in verse 5 to the previous passage. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. He's calling for the younger people in the church to subject themselves and humble themselves, put themselves under the pastors of the church. Now there is a debate, as there always is, over all the words in Scripture. Is this elders here the same elders in the previous passage? Does this mean the, the shepherds, the pastors of the church, or is this just older people? Um, and in the younger, is this a special group of younger people, maybe young uh, aspiring pastors, or is this just younger people? Well, I think in, in the terms of this context, it's clear that elders is speaking of the leadership of the church, and younger is most likely just speaking of younger people. There's an age-old problem. Of, of the old and the young, right? Uh, Ed, Ed Clowney said that the generation gap is not a new thing. There's always the, the differences between the, the generations. And the younger have a different view on life than the older in general. And I'm learning this in real time, that the younger uh, know everything about everything automatically, no matter what you say. And, and it takes humility and the putting down of pride to get to deal with with that. Spurgeon said in a sermon on this passage, he said, little children sometimes think they are wise, but they know nothing. Wisdom is with the Father, not with Him. And it's so true. And I know that now more than ever. I was in the same boat. I'm sure my dad was saying the same things about me uh, when I was younger. It's part of human nature since the fall of Adam for the young to be proud and foolish at times. Solomon said in Proverbs 22, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. So there is a group of people that we, we know this inherently just from our experience that is generally proud and a group of people in the church that is supposed to be wise. Now this is not a call for the younger people to blindly follow people because they're older, because they have a position, but it's a way they're supposed to think about the situations and and to, to handle the situations. They're supposed to handle it with subjection, with humility. And the world completely misunderstands this concept. Subject To subject yourself is to put some yourself under someone else. And that is a hard thing in our day and time to understand. We have whole movements about not being subject to anyone else, to being my own person. Now, if the elders, the pastors, are called by God through the congregation and they meet the the qualifications that God has given in Scripture, 1 Timothy 3, Titus, if they love the church and if their desire is truly to see it grow in grace and knowledge and love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ and His Word, and if, if the pastor desire is to guide the church through life, through suffering, through all these things, 
If they're not in it for the airplanes and the nice cars and the big houses, but they are truly waiting for the prize in the next life and not in this, then who better to put yourself under than a godly leader in the church of Christ that He has called you to? Who better to submit to? So one of the the problems, I think, with youth, and again, I'm learning this in real time, is the need to experience something, to see it for yourself before you believe someone else who may have already been through that and, and experienced them. And again, Solomon in Proverbs says the same thing. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 19, 20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. And you know what this takes? This takes humility. This takes not being proud. Understanding that someone else may have the answer than your own heart and your own understanding. A stubborn, hard heart full of pride has to see it for itself and draw its own conclusions. But a humble heart leaves room that someone else may know and leaves room for grace. And so he's specifically speaking to this issue of younger and pastors, but this is true for all of us, even if we're not as young as we used to be. It's a good rule of thumb for all of us, and in the broadest sense, Peter is calling for us to be mutually submissive people, to treat each other with grace, to seek counsel and wisdom from others and others' experiences. There is enough struggle and suffering out there and in our lives that we don't need to bring it into our own situations because of pride and lack of humility. So we, as Christians, Peter is telling us, need to be a humble people, and we can be humble by submitting, subjecting ourselves to one another. And then in the second part of verse 5, he teaches that we need to be humble by serving one another. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. One of the my favorite things about First Peter, and you can see this in John's works as well, is that it is a direct result of Peter's obedience to Christ that he's writing this book. Remember in the very end, before Christ uh, ascends to heaven, he, he gets with all his disciples and he gives them what we call the, the Great Commission. He tells them to go and baptize all the nations, to disciple all the nations. And, and uh, in the very last verse of Matthew 28, 20, Christ says this, teaching them, after you disciple them, you baptize them, here's what you do. You teach them to observe all that I have commanded you And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so all of these things in Peter's epistle in this letter, you can draw a line back to situations that were explained and given in the Gospels. It's really neat. If you just go through 1 Peter and look, if your Bible has cross-references, see how many go back to a Gospel and to a situation that Christ explained something and Peter was there and probably stuck his foot in his mouth and learned the hard way. Yeah. 
So we are to clothe ourselves with humility. That is what the, the words here say. Clothe yourselves with humility. And that, that phrase there is nice. It's, it's a, a good one. It means to tie um, the apron of a slave in humility, to bind an apron around your waist, to prepare yourself for work when it comes to other people. Now, who wears an apron of service? Who wears an apron of work? Does the king? Does the master? Does the boss wear an apron? No. The slaves do. The helpers, exactly. The one who's lower in class. The the employee wears the, the tools for work and to protect yourself from getting dirty, right? Except in one case. When our Lord Jesus Christ tied on an apron and served the disciples. At the very last Passover meal that they would, would have together on earth, Peter experienced this firsthand. Remember the story, John 13, 2? It says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Now, if this was you, would you tie an apron around yourself? No, you'd stand up, and I'm the king. I came from God, and I'm going back to God. But that is not what Jesus did. Look at verse 4. He rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then what did he do? He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he was wrapped around, that was wrapped around him. The king himself clothed himself with a slave's apron and did the lowest slave's job. This was the lowest of the low to wash the dirty, nasty feet of your master. The feet are not honorable parts, especially in Middle Eastern culture. I mean, you remember back when, when W. Bush was president, he was in Iraq after it all went down, and one of the reporters threw his shoes at President Bush. And it wasn't just to hurt him with the shoes, it was because that was a sign, that was an insult, a slur to him in that culture. Because the feet are the nastiest in that culture. And so the, the slave with the lowest position would have the job of washing the feet. What a humble Savior we have. He washed the feet of His disciples. This is in Peter's mind. Now, He goes around and washes the disciples' feet, and then He comes to Peter. Verse 6 of chapter 13 of John. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. The pendulum swings with Simon all the time. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. Peter knew the implications of what Christ was doing. Peter said, look, 
I'm the slave. You're the master. You don't need to be doing this. You don't need to be putting on an apron and washing my feet. And he always, well, in several cases, spoke before he fully understood. And, and I can completely relate with Peter in so many ways. But Christ in his patience explained to Peter, verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There's no doubt that this scene is what Peter had in mind when he wrote those words, to clothe yourself, to bind yourself with humility. Christ wasn't giving us another ordinance of feet washing. He was giving us an example of how we should treat one another in humility, in humbleness, not having pride. And Peter took it to heart. Christ, the King of glory, humbled Himself and served man. Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this spirit of, of humility is the spirit that we should have when we deal with each other. Grace and humility. To tie on the apron of humble service. To help each other through this life of suffering and pain until the day when we are in heaven. Peter gives us two reasons why we should have this um, spirit of humility. The last part of verse 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The first reason is because God opposes the proud. Now this is a direct quote from Proverbs, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where it says and in verse three, or chapter 334, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Now, would the person who wants the God of the universe, almighty sovereign Lord, to be opposed to him, would you raise your hand? No one, for the record, no one is waving, raising their hands. It just doesn't make any sense, right? So we need to be humble. Now let's look at some who did raise their hand. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Assyria. In the empire, he had conquered um, um, Judah. And he was proud of the kingdom that he made with his own hands in his mind. And so God made him eat like an ox for seven years. Daniel 4.29, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. 
He is the king. Humble yourself. King Herod, during after Christ's time, during Acts, gave a speech sitting on his throne where hundreds of people were listening. And it must have been a good speech because they said, man, it's the voice of a God, not the voice of a man. And instead of giving glory to God, he took that for himself. And Acts 12, 23 says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. God will not share his glory with a mere man. He is against the proud. He opposes them. And our pride is no different. Humble yourself before him because he opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. James quotes the same passage from Proverbs in chapter 4, verse 6. He gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Whereas the proud seek to glorify themselves like Nebuchadnezzar and, and Herod and many other examples in Scripture, the humble realize their need for grace. They humble themselves and they seek to glorify God. Our Lord Himself proved this as we have seen in John and in His life and in His death and in His resurrection. And just like God the Father looked down on His Son with favor, He looks down on His humble children with grace and favor as well. And these are pretty compelling compelling reasons for us to be humble toward one another, to tie on the apron of service for one another and serve each other as Christ served us. We humble ourselves by subjecting ourselves to one another, by humbly serving one another, and lastly, by resting in God's power. Verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Here in this last call to humility, Peter narrows the scope. We, we don't just humble ourselves to everyone. We specifically humble ourselves before God Himself. And this may seem to be the one that makes the most sense. And that would be the easiest one for us to follow and obey. But we will see that it's not the case, especially in our culture. Verse 6 calls back to the first, uh, to verse 5. Where, where it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's why it says, therefore. So you could read verse 6 like this, humble yourselves, because it's true that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. We are so concerned with our present life, aren't we? This is all that we know by sight, right? The, the, what comes next we take by faith and, and trust. So we hold on to what we know, what we can see, what we can taste and feel. We hold on to it with our dear lives. We hold on to it with all the control that we can muster. So we don't trust in the wisdom of God in all situations, do we? To do His will or that His will is good, even in the hardest of situations. And so instead of bringing us uh, personal illustrations, I'd like to look at our culture as an example and see how it applies to ourselves. We've seen, especially over the last couple of years, that our culture is absolutely scared to death of pain 
and discomfort or the idea that one day we're going to die. We don't believe anyone should be put out. Everyone needs a safe space, except for the ones we disagree with politically. Our culture has taken individuality as an idol in some cases and as a demon in others. We actively try to put away humility. We teach self-esteem and pride in our schools as a major pillar of who we are as a people. John Piper says that humility is not a popular human trait in the modern world. It's not touted in the talk shows or celebrated in valedictorian speeches or commended in diversity seminars or listed with core values. And if you go to the massive self-help section of Barnes & Noble, you won't find any books on humility. This is true because our culture no longer submits to or believes in God. This is the only way that real humility can survive. When God goes, humility goes. Piper said this again, in fact, you might say that humility follows God like a shadow. We can expect to find humility applauded in our society as often as we find God applauded, which means almost never. An op-ed in the Star Tribune summed it up nicely. There are some who naively cling to the nostalgic memory of God. The average churchgoer takes a few hours out of the week to experience the sacred, but the rest of the time he is immersed in a society that no longer acknowledges God as an omniscient and omnipotent force to be loved and worshipped. Today, we are too sophisticated for God. We can stand on our own. We are prepared and ready to choose and define our own existence. End quote. We want to stand on our own in our pride, but in reality, we can't. And that's why our world falls apart when we come into contact with suffering of any kind. Our culture today dispenses more antidepressant drugs and SSRIs. Um, It's unbelievable the amount of people who are not happy and are turning to pills to dull the pain. And that doesn't mean that there's never a place for those medicines. But because there's a place for them doesn't mean we don't overuse it at the same time. In a world, and if you think about it, this is crazy. In our world, there's more comfort There's more health, there's more wealth than at any other time in history. There's also more unhappiness. And this is a direct symptom of false pride. In Canada, they now allow euthanasia. They give it some pretty name, like maid or something. But euthanasia is even a nice way of saying murdering people. You go to a doctor and you tell them that you just don't feel like living anymore. He signs a piece of paper, another doctor in a white coat injects you with drugs that, that take you out of this life and into the next, and then he goes home in his nice car and eats with his family. We have no room for providence, for God's hand in our lives. We're so special and valuable that we should never experience any pain whatsoever, and things should never not go our way. This is our culture. This is what we live in. We see it every day in all these major situations. But Peter is calling us away from that idea altogether. We do believe in an almighty, sovereign God. We fall prostrate and bow before His rule and His throne, His inherent goodness, His wisdom, and His holiness. We say, though my flesh 
and my heart and my job and my wealth and my health and my expectations may fail. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We say with the psalmist in, in, in Psalm 3, verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Do you see the stark contrast, the big differences between those two worldviews? We believe in God. We trust in God. We know that He is sovereign. So we humble ourselves before Him. We put ourselves under His hand, under His mighty hand. Look at verse 6 again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. This is where the hard part comes in for us. We agree with everything I just said. He is above us. He rules. But in that ruling and in that being above us as the sovereign king, he has a proper time for us. And it may be a proper time for suffering. And it may be a proper time for exalting. And the proper time for exalting may not come in this life. We have to trust that His hand is the mighty hand, not our own. That wisdom that He has knows when the best time is and that what He does in His time is good. Not that we think it's fit time, but in His wisdom and sovereignty. This is where the rubber meets the road for us. The world will not have it. They will not let this God rule over them. And they show it in how they act and in what they believe and in what they do. Maybe those of you who remember high school English remember a poet named William Ernest Henley. He was a poet in the late 19th century of England. And if you, maybe more of you are familiar with um, Robert Louis Stevenson's book, Treasure Island, and the, the pirate Long John Silver. Long John Silver was uh, based on this poet, William Ernest Henley. Long John and Henley had peg legs. Long John, because he was a pirate, and you always lose a leg or an arm or an eye as a pirate. But Henley, because he had tubercular arthritis and had to have one of his legs amputated right below the knee. As he laid in the infirmary, healing from a surgery on his other foot, the last one he had left, he wrote a very famous poem called Invictus. I'm going to read it for you now. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud, Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Henley was determined in his pride that no matter what his circumstances were, he was going to remain the master of his fate. But if he didn't find true humility in Christ before his death, he would realize that it wasn't the situations that he was in, the clutches of circumstance or the bludgeonings of chance, as he said. 
But God was in control. God is the master of his fate and the captain of his soul. He saw that as a bad thing. He fought against that in his life. But as believers, we see that as a good thing. Look at verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is a continuation of, of verse number six. They, they go together. If you're a grammar nerd, it's called a subordinate clause. And that just means that casting all of your anxieties on him is a way of showing your humility before him. In the, the negative sense, the flip side of that is, is a barrier to casting all your cares on him. Your anxieties is pride. So unlike Henley, Don't take the suffering all by yourself. Humble yourself and trust God and He will take those anxieties for you. Earlier in this letter, in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. And this is the beautiful part of all of this serious discussion is that at the end of the day, that sovereign God, that king who sits on his throne, he's almighty, he's holy, but he also cares about us, about our little insignificant lives here in central Louisiana in 2023. His mighty hand controls the stars and the the way of the universe and all the galaxies, and every atom, and every part of an atom, and every part of the parts of atoms that we don't even know exist yet are in His Word and in His hand, but also He knows who we are, and He cares for us. This phrase is taken directly from Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And the word for burden in the Greek Old Testament is the same word for anxieties in our passage today. And my brother, my sister, you may be going right now through the worst suffering of your life. The worst suffering of your life may not even be here yet. The worst suffering of your life may have happened long ago and it still haunts you day by day. But whatever your case may be, God of revelation, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the all-knowing, all-powerful, not only knows about your suffering, but He cares for you. He is continuously caring for His own. Believer, I don't know what you're going through right now, but I know who cares for you. I know the only way to cast your cares on Him, your anxieties on Him, is to push down your pride that only wants to have its way, that only wants to be in control of your situation and humble yourselves before the leaders that God has given you. Humble yourselves before others in your lives. And when the sin of pride starts bubbling up in your heart and trying to carry its own anxiety and carry its own worry and its own problems, you preach to that heart. You say, heart, who do you think you are to be afraid of the future, to ignore the promises of God. Heart, no, I will not exalt my pride. I will not control my own uh, destiny. I, I will humble myself and bow before God's sovereignty. I will trust His promise that He cares for me and He is not allowing me to suffer for no reason. He will lift me up in His time. And if today 
you have not come to Christ and saving faith and biblical repentance, turn to Him today. The only way that this life works out for you is if you humble yourself before the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't carry all your burdens by yourself. Don't let pride put you on the opposing side of an almighty, holy God. Humble yourself today. Christ said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that light burden includes all the sufferings that we have in light of the great salvation we've been given in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is only one solution to the suffering, the problem of evil, the problem of pain in this world. And that is Jesus Christ and His glorious salvation He's provided for us through His life, through His humility. And I pray that as we leave here, that I would be the first one to humble myself before You and to get rid of the pride. Lord, bless us as we leave here today. Help us to to go and uh, live for Your glory and Your worship alone. In Christ's name, amen.